So yesterday was, you know, this little holiday called Halloween, correct? Okay, so kids, on the count of three, I want you to shout out your favorite candy. Just one, pick one. I'll give you a second to think. This is really important, so think hard. Okay, ready? Favorite candy. One, two, three, go. That's my favorite too. All of that. Oh, let's try adults. Adults, what's your favorite candy? Ready? One, two, three, go. I heard a couple Snickers. I think I'd go with that one. Okay, good. All right, so kids, imagine you get home for trick-or-treating and you are so excited, right? There's that moment of now it's time you get to eat some candy. If your parents are like like myself and my wife, we're a little mean. When the kids get home for trick-or-treating, it's you know you get maybe two pieces and that's it. So they're looking at this mound of candy going, what? So they got to make it count. Because we don't want them to get sick and our kids will be up all night just bouncing off the walls with the sugar. So we say a couple now. We save a couple for the next day and the next day and then eventually they forget about it and we eat the rest. It's kind of how it works. <laughs> I get to, I'm just being honest. It's not on purpose. Actually, usually what happens is we end up just throwing it away after about a week. Because, I mean, let's face it, they don't need all that and we don't need all that. But youth group, okay, there you go. Because they need it. Recycle. Just going to let that go. So kids, imagine you finally get home from trick-or-treating. You've got the spoils, the plunder in front of you, this big mound of candy, and there you see it. There's your favorite. There's a whole bunch of them, and you're so excited, and you pick it up, and you open it up. And instead of a candy bar, if that's your favorite, it's just a glob of mud. And, and maybe in, maybe if you're, you know, the, the pixie sticks, do they still do pixie sticks? Those are great. You know, it's pure candy, not touched by things like chocolate and nuts and things like, it's just pure sugar. And so you open up and you just, you pour it in your mouth. You're so excited. It's a pixie, pixie stick and you pour it in your mouth and you go, it's sand. Maybe your favorite is a Tootsie Roll. You open it up, you pop it in, crunch, it's a rock. It's not just hard as a rock because they all are. It's a rock. You just bit into a rock. Now imagine you actually came back with a bunch of friends. You were all trick-or-treating together, and you're opening your candy. They're opening theirs, and you're watching them just going, mm, this is good. And you're thinking, wait, we all went to the same houses here. What's going on? My candy's awful, and theirs is great. So maybe you try another one. You take a bite. No, it's mud. It's a rock. It's sand. But you're looking at your friends, and you're well, they're enjoying it. Maybe I'm wrong. So you take another bite. You go, well, you know that rock? A little gritty. It's not bad. So that mud. Got some flavors, some nice earth tones to it. It's not bad. It's okay. And you start thinking, maybe this is good. And you start opening more and more because your parents aren't looking at this point. You're opening more and more. And, oh, this is good. Man, this candy is delicious. Now imagine your parents see this. And they watch you. They come in and they go, oh my goodness, you've eaten so many. I told you to stop. But then they look and they see you about to put one in your mouth. And it's that that chunk of mud and you're about to bite down into it. At that moment, what would a loving parent do? Here you are. You've gotten to a point where you're eating mud and you're going, this is delicious. I know I have to say that because my friends are evidently saying it's delicious. And I kind of really feel like it's delicious. Kids, what should your parent in that moment What should they do? You're about to eat mud because you think it's delicious. What should they do? Should they just stand back and say, well, I 
I want my kid to be happy. I want my child to be happy, and that is making them happy. So who am I to step in? How dare I put my standards on them? How dare I step in? And your kid's just eating mud and rocks and sand. No. What does a loving parent do in that moment? Step in. Say, wait, don't eat that. That's not for you. That's not good. That's not what you're supposed to be eating. Not that the candy's a whole lot better, but this is definitely a whole lot worse. And you take it away. Now, kids, imagine in that moment your parents did that. And you actually liked what you were eating. And they took it away. How would you feel about your parent? Would you go, oh, thank you, mommy. Thank you, father. Thank you so much for saving me from the error of my ways. I was about to partake of this earthen thing instead of the candy that I should be eating. Thank you so much. Is that how you'd respond? No, you'd say, what are you doing? And you'd fall down on the floor and roll over crying. That's just me. That's how I respond. But maybe you're a little more mature. No, we get upset. So we're walking our way through about the first 22 chapters of Genesis. We're looking at this idea of God's plan from the beginning. Does God have a plan for all of creation? And if he does, does he have a plan for each one of us? What does that look like? And how do we see that in these early chapters of the Bible? And one of the things that we're beginning to see, at least I hope you're seeing it, is that as God is working out his plan, when sin entered the world, there there comes into the world this substitute path. This other way, this us-chosen, human-chosen other way of seeking good things. And we call that sin. And it's settling for something that is a substitute for what God has. We choose something other than what God has for us. And it's always less than the best that God has for us. But we call that thing good because that's what Adam and Eve wanted. We talked about the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate from that tree, it wasn't just, I want to know good things and know bad things. It's, I want to be able to determine right from wrong. I want the authority to say what is good and what is evil. So now they're calling evil good. And it's just like us eating that candy and saying, oh, this is delicious. Meanwhile, others are looking on going, you're hurting yourself. What is a loving God to do? So we're going to look briefly at Genesis chapter 10. And then we're going to move into chapter 11, just verses 1 through 9, and look at the Tower of Babel. We're going to spend the bulk of our time there. So open up to Genesis chapter 10. And when I say quick, literally we're going to spend about a minute on this chapter. This is a, it's a genealogy chapter. Uh, there's, some, there's some good stuff here, but it traces the lineage from the sons of Noah, we talked about the flood and what happened with Noah and the ark last week. And it traces the lineage of the flood uh, from Noah to basically up to the Tower of Babel, actually up to Abraham. Now, just one thing I want to point out in case, and I, I encourage you to read it on your own. We're not going to read through it today ourselves uh, together. But if you do read through it on your own, one thing you will notice is that it does mention multiple languages. And so some people say, wait a minute. Oh, you Christians, there's an error in your Bible because here there's multiple languages and this next part that we're going to talk about, chapter 11, that's when God confused the languages. So see, there's a problem. We have to remember how Hebrew history worked. They didn't think real linear like we did. A happened, then B, then C, then D. See, chapter 10 
covers sort of a sweeping view of a broad span of this history in these families. And its goal is just to get from point A to point B. We've talked about that. And to say, these are the lineage, this is the father of so-and-so, and trace it on down, and how things spread and develop. Chapter 11 then goes back into that history and pinpoint a specific spot. So no, there's no contradiction there at all. It's an overlap. And you see that often in Scripture. It's not trying to give us a nice, neat timeline of the history of events. That's not the way they worked. They were tracing themes and ideas, first and foremost, to understand who God is. That's all I'm going to say about chapter 10. So turn to chapter 11. And let's look at verses 1 through 9. And I do want to read this for us. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Verse five, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This passage is really crucial in the book of Genesis. There are several I would say touch point passages, bookend passages that are super important to understand the flow of thought throughout Genesis. And this is one of them because this forms the the end of the beginning, if I could put it that way. Genesis 1 through 11 is in scripture first and foremost to lead up to what happens in Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham. Because in the call of Abraham, now we're going to get into the people of God and God's plan of salvation working out in the world. But we needed to know, just as the Israelites needed to know, why do we need to be saved? What's the big deal? Why is it so bad? And so we've looked at those things. But if you think about it, Genesis starts in a garden with people living in God's perfect presence, under his perfect blessing, having everything they need. Genesis 11, verse 9 By the time we get to the end of the Tower of Babel, people are confused, they're being scattered around the world, they're lost, and they're desperate. And so it forms this bookend. I want to point out a few key things. One is the structure of this passage. A lot of times it's easy to miss these things, but we need to understand, and maybe this doesn't matter to you, but I think it's important. The Bible's really good literature. God knew what he was doing when he wrote this down. And the way Moses records this is just beautiful. And it helps us to see some important things. So I've prepared a chart here for you. It's really small, but I hope you can read it. All right? This is what's called a a chiastic structure. There's sort of this funneling of things. And so in the beginning of the account, it's going to say something that the people did. And at the end of the account, it's what God did. And you're going to see this mirroring that goes on. Okay, so the first thing that we have in verse one is the people, this whole world, they have one language. When you get to verse nine, God is going to take that language and confuse it. So there's the mirror. 
Then we go down a little farther. The people settle in verse 2. They settle into a particular place. And then in verse 8, the Lord scatters them from that place. And I know as you look at this, you're thinking, oh, come on. I mean, really, it's kind of vague. The thing is, the exact same words are being used intentionally, even sometimes in places where the word is a little awkward, but it's being used to specifically refer back to what was said earlier. Here's what the people did, and then here's what God does. So we'll go on. In verse 3, it said that the people speak to each other. And later on, God is going to cause them to not be able to understand each other. In verse 3, it also says, the people say, and this is one of those words you can tell what's going on, they say, come. Come, let's do something. Let's make bricks. They're going to build something. And then in verse 7, the Lord says, come. And he's talking to himself, to the heavenly host, to the Trinity. I'm not really sure. But again, there's that word, come. It's like the Lord saying, okay, I've got one for you. Come, let's go down and confuse them. I'm going to do something. In verse 4, the people want to build a city with a tower. In verse 5, the Lord says, I, I want to see the city and the tower. And so we have these mirror things leading up, and then there's something in the middle. And it's what's in the middle of this. When you see that structure in Scripture, it's what's in the middle that the author is saying, you need to see this. This is what this is all about. And it's this. The Lord came down. The Lord came down. Here's human beings. Here's humanity doing their thing, making themselves happy, going, this is great. I'm eating mud. I'm eating dirt. I'm eating sand. I'm fine. This is wonderful. I love it. It's the best thing in the whole wide world. And God says, no, no. I need to come down and do something about this. The other thing that's really interesting about that phrase, what kind of tower were they trying to build? A tower that reaches where? To the heavens. Okay, so here they are going up and they're going, this is amazing. We're so high up. We're going to be like God. We're way up there. This is so cool. And what does God do? God looks down. And it specifically says God came down. And it's saying all of that work that they were doing, it was nothing compared to the greatness of God. Even the greatest of our human achievements are far less than the greatness of God. The Lord had to come down just to see what they were doing. Now, what's going on here? They're substituting things. They're taking the... Sorry, I missed a slide. I'll leave that up and you can just see it. They're substituting some things that God has given them. I want to point out a couple key things that they're substituting. They're relying on themselves instead of relying on God. Do you remember back in Genesis 1.28, God told Adam and Eve something to do? He said to, to fill the earth. Go out and fill the earth and subdue it. Now here they are, sort of a this early humanity. There's not many of them. There's Adam and Eve, and then they start having kids. And you can imagine if things would have gone on under God's blessing, they would have gone out and, and they would have separated and wandered, and they would have had to constantly live depending on God's provision for them. Instead, at the Tower of Babel, people are saying, we don't want to do that. We're scared, so if we stick together, we've got a better plan. We're going to make our city, and we'll have everything we need in our city. We'll make a tower, and we'll be more important than we are if we just scattered. They're relying on themselves and their own plans. They've substituted that for God's plan. They've also substituted God's plan for his own glory 
Look at verse 4. What is it that they want to do? In verse 4, it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens. Why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. That's a really important phrase. To make a name for yourself implies fame. It implies glory. We want to be well-known. So they're saying we want to be self-sufficient and be known for that. The whole world is going to look at us and say, aren't those Babylonians amazing? Aren't the people living there? Aren't they great? Look at the tower. Look at the city. Oh, I wish we could be like them. But it's more than that. Because we've talked about this before. When Adam, and well, specifically Adam, when he named the animals, he was exercising something over the animals. He was exercising authority. To name something is to have authority over it, according to the Hebrew way of thinking. So to make a name for yourself was more than just wanting to be famous. It was saying, I want to be in control of my own destiny. I'm going to make myself great. I'm going to use my own efforts, and I'm going to accomplish this. They're substituting God's ways for theirs. They're saying, if we can do this, if we can build with these bricks, if we can build this city, if we can build this tower. But then verse 5, it says, the Lord came down. They were ignoring God totally. All these things that they were looking for, God was nowhere in those plans. He was completely outside of it. Now, is God being mean? Let's, Let's think about this in some modern day ways of thinking. If building a tower makes them happy, is it really that wrong? Is it wrong to build towers? I mean, if it is, our cities of the world are, well, I mean, they are pretty corrupt, but then a skyscraper is inherently sinful if it's wrong to build a tower. Is that what this is about? No, it's not wrong to build build big buildings. It's not wrong to build cities. What's wrong is to do anything and leave God out of the picture, to substitute who God is in God's ways with our own ways and our own plans and our own authority. That's what's wrong. I want to give you a heads up. Turn to Genesis 12. This is what we're going to talk about next week, but I just want to give you a teaser. I usually teach Genesis 11, 1 through 9 with Genesis 12, and it's for this reason. But I wanted to separate them so that you can see. Look at 12 verses 1 through 3. Now remember, what did the people at the Tower of Babel want? They wanted to make their name great. Watch for that word. 12 verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, go to your, or go from your country, your people, from your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a what nation? Great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name what? Great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's easy to look at the Tower of Babel and go, yeah, there's that big mean God upstairs and he just doesn't want us to amount to anything. We're just supposed to be miserable under God's glory. That's his plan for us. Absolutely not. The problem was not that they wanted to be great. That's like saying after Halloween when you've told your kids they can eat the candy that the problem is them wanting to eat the candy. That's not the problem. The problem is the candy. The problem is that they're eating rocks and mud. They've substituted or somebody has substituted the real thing for that fake, artificial, awful thing. And they've settled for it. God created us to be great in his plan, according to his definition, 
according to his fame and his glory and his power. The problem of sin so often is we seek it in our own ways and we redefine it. And there's whole movements of Christianity that are based around this idea that God wants you to be great, but then they take our definition of greatness and they say, well, that means he just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and everything's going to work out great. Well, that's our definition of greatness. God's definition of greatness is to live in his blessing so that he gets the glory. Whatever that takes. Because you know, it's interesting, if you look at the the life of Paul, if you look at the life of some of the Old Testament saints, especially if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, he doesn't match up to that modern definition of greatness. By the modern definition of greatness, Jesus was an absolute failure. But by God's definition, he was great. You see, the problem wasn't that they wanted something, it's that they were settling for too little. And because God loved them so much, and because he loves each one of us, He says, I'm not going to allow you to find satisfaction in that. I'm not going to allow you to eat the dirt and the sand and the rocks. Let's talk briefly about our substitutes. I don't know about you, but I've never really felt a desire to build a tower. Never really woke up one morning going, I've got it. I'm going to build a tower. That's going to be awesome. That'll solve all my problems. Never really felt that way. What are some things that we substitute I just came up with a few. This is not an exhaustive list. I think we substitute for for God's glory and God's ways, we substitute our own control. We say, if, if I can move my life and the situations of my life, if I can control where I live and where I work and what makes me happy and control my time and control my money and control this, if I can control where my kids go to school, if I can control what my kids do, if I can control this and this and this, I'll be happy. We're so busy trying to control and run our own lives that we're missing out on what God has for us. We've substituted that. I think we substitute knowledge. We think if we can just win arguments, I see this often among Christians, if I can just be so smart in God's word that I can pound other people into the dirt with my intellectual ability, oh, that'll be great. There's always more to know. And there's always people really smart that are going to have some disagreements. We substitute our knowledge. I think we substitute our our influence over people. We say, well, if they can just think that I'm amazing. doesn't matter if I am amazing. It's okay if I can cover up the fact that I know I'm not amazing. But if I can make them think that I'm amazing, if I can get them to do what I want them to do, if I can get them to listen to me or follow me, I think we substitute our own comfort and acceptance. We say, if I just don't rock the boat, this will keep me happy. And sometimes that even goes into areas of sin in our lives where we know God is saying something's wrong, but we say, well, I don't want to rock that boat either. I I don't want to upset, or if I deal with that sin, it's going to upset somebody else because they're influenced by it, and I I, I just can't do that. I've got to remain comfortable. I want to be accepted. I think one of the things we substitute for God's ways and God's plan is our own efforts, our own goodness. I think we could say, I know God loves me. I know he has a great plan for his life. I know Jesus died on the cross for me, and I accept that. And now, if I can be the best person I can be, then God will love me. And we've just taken God's plan and wiped it to the side, and we've put our way in there. Say, I can do this. I think sometimes we substitute distraction. 
I think this is a big one in the modern era. I know I feel it. You go on Facebook. I go on with really good intentions. I want to see what's up with people in the church so I can pray for them. Oh, look at the kitty cat. That's so cute. <laughs> and boom, it's gone. Cat videos for the rest of the day. No, not really. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But we live in an age of distraction. The media, the internet, it is constant. If if sin can keep us from looking at and dealing with the sin in our life and looking at and dealing with who God is, it doesn't have to convince us we're wrong. It just has to keep us distracted. So we substitute God's plan and God's ways with just being distracted. But then we say, well, I'm a victim. It's out of control. I can't really do anything. It's a choice to be distracted. It's an act of our own control. It's a substitute for God's ways. And these are all poor substitutes. And maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe you can look at your own heart and say, what am I substituting for God's plan and God's ways? And how is that a poor substitute? Which leads me to the final point. If we're going to talk about the substitute and the poor substitutes, we need to talk about the real thing. We're about to take communion in a little bit. This is a celebration of the real thing in Jesus Christ. That nothing else can take that place in our life. Everything else is pale in comparison with the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. When we settle for these substitutes, we're not just accepting a rock for a piece of candy. We're accepting these poor, inefficient, ineffectual, unsatisfying things, and we're putting that in the place of this. Think of the blessings of God's work in our life. God knows you perfectly. Every idea, every thought, every secret, every sin, every issue, every joy, everything about you, God knows right now. And if we stop there, that's terrifying. But the Bible makes it very clear, he loves you. So the one who knows you the best right now, better than you know yourself, he already loves you. Why would we substitute anything for that? Ephesians 2, 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. God saves us. Those things that we struggle with, those feelings in our life that something's not right, and we take another piece of candy, we take another substitute, we say, I'll feel a little better. I'll click on this, I'll feel a little better. God says, no, 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 no. I've saved you. I've taken all that sin, as Jenny sang about, taken it all away. What sin? It's gone. It was put on Jesus Christ. God saves us. God works for our good. He makes us holy. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And what does that work look like? What is it that God wants to do in our lives? Have you heard of this thing called the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who looks at a list like that and goes, ugh, that's gross. I look at a list like that and I say, oh God, that's what I want in my life. All these things that I'm chasing after, if I really was honest with myself, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of them are an effort to find what are, what's in that list. Right? And God's saying, here's the real thing. Here's the thing that we've got to be careful not to substitute. God's saying, that's what I do in you through my son, Jesus Christ. That's it. Trust me. 
follow me. Quit building your own towers. Quit building your own temples and cities. Quit chasing after your own idols and the poor lesser substitutes. Trust me. We have the blessings of God's plan. God made us to be with him. Throughout scripture, we have this pattern of God coming and being with his people, being with Israel. Emmanuel, God with us and Jesus Christ to be with us. God is with us in the church for where two or three are gathered together. There is God with us. And at the end in Revelation 21.3, it says God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with him, with them and be their God. This is God's plan for you, for you to live in his perfect presence with God providing everything you could possibly need. Your greatest joy, greatest love, your greatest acceptance. Now look at anything you run after in your life and you tell me, how does that measure up? Because that's what we're getting rid of to substitute these lesser things. So kids, How would you feel if your parents took your candy away, if it was awful? And adults, and all of us, how do we feel when God steps in and takes something that we're seeking satisfaction in and causes it to no longer give us satisfaction? It is so popular in the world today to say God is mean and nasty and awful and how dare he? How dare he? Because he loves us too much to allow us to find satisfaction in those lesser things. That's why. We can't settle for the substitutes. Ultimately, as we move into chapter 12, we're going to begin a major storyline in Scripture. It's a storyline that's going to go from Abraham through the nation of Israel, through the Old Testament, all the way up to the birth of a child on Christmas morning, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God with us. And while we are not to settle for any substitute in our relationship with God, it is very important for you to understand that God settled for a substitute in your place. But it was a substitute that is greater than us, not lesser than us. You see, Jesus is our substitute in God's plan. We live every day as Christians with the hope of heaven because God took our sin, put it on his son, and allowed him and caused him to be a substitute in our place. If you're going to settle for any substitute in this world, settle for that substitute, that Christ died in your place so that you could live the plan that God has for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as I think about things in my own life that that take my concentration, that take my time, that take my passion and and my abilities, things that you've given me, it, it makes me sick. Because God, nothing measures up to the incredible blessings that we have in you. And I pray that as your people, we would get better at identifying these substitutions and these distractions in our own life. May we call them what they are, not just something to help us along, not just something to help us feel a little bit better, but a distraction, a substitution away from your perfect plan and purpose and presence, away from that, into doing things our own way, building our own towers, our own cities to make ourselves feel better. And God, may our prayer in that moment be, Father, come down 
and stop my building as hard as it may be. And God, maybe there's someone here that has a loved one that's dealing with these things. And they're watching them go down that road and they're saying, God, love them back, keep them, help them to come back. Father, there's a time. Maybe we need to say, Father, go down. See what they're doing. Confuse it. Upset it. Stop it. So that in the moment of that desperation, they could turn to you and see the real thing. The substitute for their sin that you provided on the cross in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.